We're in Galatians chapter 2. We're going to continue studying the book of Galatians. We're in the midst of a series called How to Be a Good Christian and Other Religious Nonsense. So we're discovering what that means as we study the book of Galatians. I'll be reading and teaching from the New Living Translation, as I've been doing throughout the whole book. The title of today's message is The Gospel Creates Unity. The Gospel Creates Unity. Very important message for the church today because we have a problem in this area. We're not that good at accepting and including and loving one another. Not nearly as good as we should be in light of the gospel and what it means to us and for us and its relational implications. So this is an important message for us as a church and the church in general. It is a message directed primarily at the church for Christians. Uh, Next week, hint, would be a great Sunday to bring your non-Christian friends, hint, hint, because that text will be good for preaching the gospel, and I'm planning on getting crazy. Um, (laughs) Let's read our text. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14 of Galatians chapter 2. Paul speaking says, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who were not circumcised, But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you... A Jew by birth have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile. Why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity today to get into your word. We say together that we believe your word to be the infallible, inerrant, authoritative, living, and active truth from you. And we ask that today it be living and active in our lives. We ask that it would be transformative. We don't want to just study the word. We want your word to study us and our hearts and our proclivities and by your spirit to correct us, to rebuke us and reprove us and train us for righteousness, Lord. So we ask together that you would soften our hearts and open our minds and that you would anoint my lips to speak your truth in a way that glorifies you, is consistent and consonant with your word and helps your spirit bring transformation to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's remind ourselves and for those who are just tuning into this series about the problem that's being addressed in the book of Galatians. It's basically this. In Paul's absence, Paul had planted the church. Now in his absence, there are some men who have come into the churches in Galatia and they're teaching basically this, that yes, the gospel is the way that you start the Christian life. We're saved by the gospel, the belief in what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross in place of us because of our sins. By grace, through faith, in that message, the Christian life is began. But then they would say, but then to live the Christian life, you need to begin to do certain things. If one wants to be a good Christian and maintain a good standing before God daily, then you've got to do good things. And from their perspective, those good things would be to be circumcised and obey the Mosaic law. 
Now, those men that were teaching that in the churches in Galatia were aware that Paul taught a different message, that Paul taught that the gospel means that we are daily accepted and daily approved of by God, regardless of what we do or fail to do because of what Jesus has done for us. And when we put our hope, our trust, and our faith in that message and in the person of Christ, then we have daily and complete acceptance and approval from God. So they didn't like that message. So they, they wanted people to start to behave rightly and, and be good Christians. So they attacked Paul's message. And, and in doing that, they cast aspersion on his apostleship. They basically say that his apostleship was a secondhand thing, that he wasn't one of the OGs. He wasn't one of the originals, but it was a secondhand thing. And same with his message, that he got the message not directly from Jesus, like the OG apostles, but later on from them. And then he had distorted it. And so Paul, in wanting to defend the gospel message and its implications for Christian living then, defends in this letter to the Galatians both his apostleship and his message. He claims that both his apostleship and his message are directly from Jesus, that he, in fact, is OG. And we get that in chapter 1, verse 1, and in chapter 1, verse 12. And then last week in the text, and the subject of that sermon was that the message and the apostleship of Paul were confirmed by the apostles in Jerusalem. And when we looked at Peter confirming the message of the gospel that Paul preached, we came to this realization at the end of last week's sermon that Peter would never add to the gospel message that once we've been accepted before God because of what Jesus has done by grace through faith, Peter would never say that then, if you, if you want to continue to be accepted, you got to do good things, you got to do the right things, you got to perform in a certain way. Peter would never say that. Because Peter's the one who denied Jesus three times on the day that he was being nailed to the cross. And a few days later was restored by Jesus on the beach of the Sea of Galilee. Not because in those few days, all of a sudden, Peter got his act together and did a bunch of good things, but because of the good thing that Jesus had done for him on the cross. And in his resurrection, Peter was accepted in spite of his performance. So Peter would never be one who would say, look, you want to be a good Christian? You really got to perform well. Peter's just not going to say that. But the interesting thing that we learn in the text today is that when it came to the issues of identity, acceptance, inclusion, and exclusion, Peter was willing to act in a way at times that was inconsistent with what he believed about the gospel. He believed that everyone who was a Christian was daily accepted and approved of by God because of what Jesus did for us. He believed that. But at times he acted differently as though there were a better way and that people that didn't do it were in some way lesser. In other words, Peter's actions sometimes pushed the idea of being a good Christian, whereas his beliefs weren't necessarily that there was such a thing. What I want us to see today is that Peter's actions are representative of our own tendency and proclivity to sometimes within the Christian community hold ourselves aloof from other Christians who, for one reason or another, don't measure up in our minds. They, they haven't performed or they don't hold 
quite the right beliefs. They don't have quite the right practices. And so they don't really measure up. And so we hold ourselves aloof in varying degrees from them. Now, Peter's motive in doing this was perhaps different than ours. He was motivated by peer pressure. These guys came from Jerusalem, friends of James, and Peter was intimidated about what they might think themselves being good Jews. And so Peter then changed his behavior. But it's indicative of the same root problem, and it's this. We, as Christians, sometimes value classing and locating others in ourselves over the relational implications of the gospel. You see, the relational implications of the gospel are always inclusive, always accepting. So let's look to the text and see how this unfolds. We'll, we'll look at it closely. First of all, it says that this took place in Antioch. So I brought a map to show you where Antioch is. Antioch was the third most important city in the Roman Empire during the time of Paul. Um, it became a Christian center. It was really the first Christian center outside of Jerusalem. Antioch was, according to Acts chapter 11, verse 26, the first place where Christians were ever called Christians or Messiah people. They were first called Christians in Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas had spent a year there ministering. So I brought my little laser pen and uh, I love maps. Here's the Mediterranean Sea right here. Here's Israel, right? There's Jerusalem, Syria up above it. And this is Antioch. It used to be called Antioch of Syria. Forget about that Antioch. Forget about it. This is the one that we're concerned about. It's on the northeast corner of the Mediterranean. It's in the southeast corner of modern-day Turkey. This would be modern-day Turkey. The churches of Galatia that the letter that we're studying was written to were up here, okay, uh, modern northern Turkey. Here's Ephesus. Here's Athens and Corinth. Remember the Corinthians? We just finished studying uh, Philippians. Here's Philippi. Remember the Bereans from Acts 17? Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Antioch right here, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Incredibly important place. First major center of Christianity. And the two gnarliest dudes, Peter and Paul, have a public confrontation here. And then Paul writes about it for every Christian for the next 2,000 years to read. <laughs> and and he, he doesn't do it to shame Peter. He does it because what was at stake was so profound in its possible effects on the Christian community. And he does it in order to defend that his gospel was indeed authentic, so authentic that it could even be used to rebuke the great apostle Peter when he wasn't acting accordingly. So verse 11, let's read it again. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. But when Peter came to Antioch, that but creates a juxtaposition in our mind. So Peter had approved the message of Paul. Yeah, we're accepted by grace through faith and nothing we could do well or nothing that we do poorly ever affects the way that God feels about us. We're perfectly loved by God, perfectly accepted. We have a perfect standing before him because of Jesus. Peter agreed with that, but, but when he came to Antioch, he didn't behave in a way that was consonant with that belief. There was an inconsistency in his behavior. And Paul says that be, the, the behavior was very wrong. Verse 11, what he did was very wrong. 
Now, as, as I said, it, it wasn't an issue of conviction. He had the right convictions, Peter did. It was about action. It wasn't an issue about what he believed. He had the right beliefs, but he didn't behave according to his beliefs. And we're sometimes like that, aren't we? Our behavior does not always perfectly reflect our beliefs as Christians. But what was at stake here is important. The truth of the gospel and what it means for daily living. And so Paul says, I had to oppose him to his face. Public opposition to Peter's face. And Paul was willing to do that again because of the truth of the gospel. Because, you see, Paul realized that what we do has a greater effect on people than what we say. Isn't that true? We need to know that as Christians, our witness in the world. We could preach all day long, but what we do is what people are going to remember and be affected by. And within Christianity, we could say, I love you all day long, but, but the way that we act that out has the greatest effect. And so Paul, concerned about the effect of Peter's behavior, confronts him. Now, what did Peter do that was so wrong? We saw it in verse 12. When he first arrived at Antioch, Peter ate with Gentile Christians who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. So Peter gets to Antioch, this Christian center. He's there to check it out. And when he gets there, he's dining with Gentiles. Now that was a big shift for him because he had previously been an observant Jew before he understood the gospel and had been changed by Jesus. And religious Jews just didn't do that. They, they never ate with Gentiles. From a biblical perspective, a Gentile is anyone that's not a Jew. Okay, the Bible divides the world into two categories, Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. So Gentile is a non-ethnic Jew. Uh, Christian Gentiles, it said here, is just a Christian that was not a Jew before they became a Christian. And Peter would eat with them. Most Jews would never do that for two basic reasons. Number one, the law. Number two, what it meant in that culture to eat with somebody. You see, the law, first of all, forbade certain foods. And Gentiles ate those foods. And according to the law, um, their utensils and their pots and their plates and their bowls and stuff would become ceremonially to speak, contaminated, unclean. And so if a Jew ate any of that food or ate from any of the bowls or utensils or pots that the food was made with, they would become ceremonially unclean. Doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but for them it was a big deal because it meant that they were excluded for a time from the religious life of Israel. And if you're a religious Jew, that's just a super bummer. And you had to do a bunch of stuff to be clean and participate once again in the life of Israel. So Jews would say, that's a hassle and that's not good. I, I'm not going to do that. I just don't eat with Gentiles. I just don't. But, but the other had more profound social implications. It's hard for us to imagine what it meant in that culture to eat with somebody. It, it was much more than, than how we think of it. We get a glimpse of it in the Gospels, don't we? Where the religious leaders were, were, were shocked and appalled at the people that Jesus ate with, right? Because Jesus ate with sinners, and sinners in the Gospels means the irreligious, the non-religious. They weren't practicing Jews, so they were unclean. He ate with prostitutes who were obviously unclean, drunkards, tax collectors, and the like. He ate with these people, and the, the religious Jews were appalled by that. Not only because it would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean every time he did that from a religious perspective, but more profoundly, because in that culture, dining with somebody was the greatest symbol and expression of acceptance and identification. In that culture, if you ate somebody, he said, I, I, I accept if you ate somebody. <laughs> 
in that cannibalistic culture of Israel, <laughs> in that culture, if you ate with somebody, it meant I, I accept you. I, I'm, I'm willing to identify myself with you. There's an inclusionary thing going on here. And, and that was really big in a culture that was really segregated in a lot of different ways. We just, we just don't have that. We'll eat with anybody. You know what I mean? We go in fast food places. We're like, whatever, dude. We'll eat with anybody. Before we have somebody over to our house, we're not like, okay, what's your religious background? And are you ceremonial clean? And what's your ethnic background? We just don't do that. We, we don't think in these terms. But it wasn't that long ago when our nation actually did. Our moms and dads could remember a time when there were separate eating areas, separate drinking fountains, separate restrooms for those that were different. And when that was a prevalent part of our culture, anybody who dared to cross those boundaries was saying, I, I identify with you. I, I accept you. We, we might be different in a lot of ways, but I am, I am with you. That's what was going on in those days. And Jews weren't willing to say that toward Gentiles for a lot of reasons. And it wasn't just strictly a racial thing, although it did cross into that for some Jews at some times in that culture. But the, the motivation had more to do with this. Had more to do with who was in or out according to behavior who obeyed the law of Moses and was circumcised to show that they intended to do so and who did not. And that determined for the Jew who was in and who was out. Circumcision, this thing that keeps coming up in this book and in the New Testament, touches on the issues of identity, inclusion, and rejection. We can relate to this because we still do this in our culture in different ways. What we look to find to do is easy ways to identify who's in and who's out? Who, who's part of our tribe? Who, who do I belong to and, and who belongs with me? And we do it with all sorts of arbitrary things. I do it with anybody with a faux hawk. Like if you, if you have a faux hawk, you're so in and I'm so in with you. And it's like this love brotherhood thing. Like, yes, faux hawk. <laughs> I'm 6'6", six, six, so tall people. I'm like in, just love. Surfers in, love. I love you. Everybody else, out. <laughs> we do it in all these arbitrary ways. And what we're doing is we're just trying to locate ourselves in society. We want to know who our tribe is, who, who our family is, not just where we belong, but who belongs with us. It's, it's, it really has to do with the question of identity. And it's not necessarily a bad thing until you begin to discriminate against others that aren't necessarily in that tribe or family. For Jews, what settled identity and who was in or out was circumcision. Every Jewish male was circumcised on the eighth day. Women, you just kind of went along with the guys. This is the way it was then. I'm sorry. I didn't make it up. But, but for the guys, you, you were circumcised on the eighth day. And, and it was this outward visible thing that you were in a covenant with God. And it was meant to be very important, much more than outward, because the Bible always spoke about circumcision of the heart. We get it all the way back in Deuteronomy. We've got it all the way into the book of Romans. And it was supposed to be a transformation of the heart, this relationship with God. That the old dead flesh and sinful nature is to be cut away, and God will work a new heart in us. But 
Like everything else that was outward, it became routine, and it's easier to do outward things than to really practice inward transformation. And so that really became the identifier within Jewish communities. And the reason that circumcision was the identifier, again, was because it was hard to tell who was keeping the law and who wasn't. I mean, who had time to watch people and see how they prepared the food and all this? And even if you did, you, you know, the rabbis and the scribes were always arguing about the interpretation of the law. So there were these, these different opinions about what it meant to keep the law. But if you were circumcised, that was clear cut. No pun intended. You... <laughs> that was so stupid. If you were circumcised, it was clear. You were in, and people that were not were out. And that is the sort of antiquated, wrong, non-gospel thinking that Peter was falling into. You see, the gospel nullified all of that. The gospel does away with every other marker and source of identity. But Peter's falling back into this antiquated way of locating oneself and others, determining who is in and out in a way that the gospel had previously nullified for him. So it said there in verse 12, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He, he was now, because of the fear of man and peer pressure, he, he, he was refusing to have fellowship to practice acceptance and inclusion with people that he had previously done that with. Think, think how hurtful that was for them. Peter's here from Jerusalem. He knew Jesus. Like, how stoked were these Gentiles? Like, dude, you knew Jesus? Pfft, yeah, I knew Jesus. We got, we're like this. You know, and all of a sudden, these guys come from Jerusalem. Peter's like, dude, I can't really hang out with you. He's like, blocked your number, like, blocked and like, <laughs> blocked you on Facebook. And you like, can't get a hold of them. That's exactly what happened. Peter is now functioning purely according to the old rules of exclusion and not the truth of the gospel, which is always inclusionary. And so verse 13 then tells us what happened. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So again, actions are really meaningful and really powerful and affect a lot of change. When Peter's doing this, even Barnabas, who had been Paul's homeboy, Paul's right-hand guy, and preaching this gospel of grace all over the world, is now doing the same thing, excluding certain people because they don't have the right behavior. Now, in our culture, when we go to see a movie or a play or some sort of performance, we expect um, makeup and costume to be extraordinary, right? In fact, we need special effects, right? We, it's like, we, we, we got to be brought into it. Like, that's, they're really that person or that head really just got cut off or, or something like that. In that day, when plays were frequent, they didn't have that sort of makeup and costume. The actors just had a, a, a mask on a stick that they would hold in front of them. <laughs> and so ancient, you know, audiences need a little more imagination, like, okay, you're kind of someone different, but I really think that you're not. <laughs> and those actors that held a stick in front of their face were called hypocrites. That, that was the name for an actor in that culture. By the time Paul is using that term here in Galatians chapter 2, it's come to mean more than just an actor. It's come to mean someone who's playing a role that's not real. It's how we use the word hypocrite. Someone who's pretending to be someone 
or something they're not. Someone who's being untrue to who they really are. And Peter was playing the part. His actions did not square with his convictions about the gospel. Peter wasn't being true to what he knew about the gospel. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make the Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? Peter was not being true to what he believed about the gospel and how it had freed him from those requirements and freed others from those requirements. Peter wasn't being true to that. He wasn't following the truth of the gospel, it says. Literally in the Greek, he wasn't walking straightly. The New American Standard says he he wasn't straightforward about the gospel. What he and the others were doing, holding themselves aloof from other Christians for no good reason and refusing to, listen to this, refusing to have fellowship with those that God had accepted into fellowship wasn't squaring with the gospel. It wasn't the straight truth. It was crooked. It was a perversion. It was a twisting. It was a masquerade. It was hypocrisy. You see, the truth is this, that the gospel when daily, by you and me, the gospel, when daily thought on and and acted upon, the gospel always creates unity. Wherever there is division among us, there's a failure for us to apply the gospel. It's always a failure to think deeply upon and humbly apply the truth of the gospel to our relationships. Wherever the gospel gospel is followed, wherever we're straightforward about it, it will always create unity among Christians. You see, the gospel nullifies all the other markers and identifiers. It does away with them. All the other ways that we used to locate ourselves and others, they're all put down by the gospel because we have been brought into fellowship with God and one another by the truth of the gospel. And if it's the gospel that brings us together, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, if that's what brings us together, then what brings us together is bigger, more powerful, and more important than anything that could threaten to tear us apart. Any difference, any disagreement, any level of disgruntledness, anything that threatens to tear us apart, the truth, the good news about Christ and what he's done for us is bigger, more important than it takes precedent over anything else. Therefore, to break fellowship with other believers for no good biblical reason is to deny the gospel, not follow the truth of the gospel, not be straightforward about the gospel, and to be a hypocrite. And judging by how Paul was willing to deal with Peter in front of the whole church in Antioch, it was a serious sin. It was a serious offense before God. And it's one I've been guilty of frequently in my life. It's one that some of you are guilty of today. 
See, we, we commit this sin in all sorts of different ways as Christians, this, this breaking of fellowship with one another. For us, the, the issue is never circumcision. But it's often Calvinism. Or it's when you think the rapture is going to happen. Or it's whether or not you believe the gifts are for today. Or it's whether or not you think that worship music should only be pianos and cellos or electric guitars and drums. Or it's the Bible translation that you use. And all those things are kind of important. All, all, all those have some, some doctrinal implications. But we Christians who are called to love and accept each other more than anyone else on the face of the earth, we, we create divisions for even lesser reasons. Like, does a Christian dance or not? Does he or she lift his or her hands? Do, do they, does that Christian dress in a certain way? Does that Christian drink alcohol? Does that Christian like certain music? We're not talking about sins. Okay, okay when someone is in sin and is unrepentant, there are times that we're to separate ourselves from them within the Christian community. We see that clearly in Matthew chapter 18 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but we're not talking about sins here. Nor are we talking about the core essential doctrines of the Christian faith, like the, div the, the divinity of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, salvation by grace through faith alone, the truth of the cross, the resurrection of Christ. We're not talking about those core essentials. If somebody does, doesn't disagree with those, yeah, we're, we're kind of separate. We're talking about Christians that believe the core doctrines of the Christian faith who are breaking up with each other just because of preferences and perspective. Preferences and perspective. That's what Peter had. He had a preference and a different perspective. And Paul said that that's hypocrisy and that's making the gospel crooked. That, that's a perversion. When we do that, when we make these little separations and, and, and we then relationally hold ourselves aloof from, think ourselves better than, look down on, don't associate with, sit on the other side of the sanctuary from, when we do that, we're effectively creating two classes of Christians. And the Bible, and particularly Galatians, is just opposed to that. When we get to chapter 3, we'll read this in verse 26. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's not that it's wrong to have preferences. It's not that it's wrong for our doctrines to differ. Right? You can be reformed, not reformed. You can be cessationist, not cessationist. That is, when you think the gifts expired or whether or not they expired. You could have opinions about worship and what it ought to look like and liturgy and symbology within the church. It's not that we shouldn't have preferences. It wasn't even that Peter couldn't practice the dietary laws. He could have he wanted. No big deal. When it became sin was, number one, when he thought it made him better. It was sin at that point. And number two, when he thought less of people because they didn't do or they didn't hold to. That's what Peter did. It was hypocrisy 
and a perversion of the gospel. And we do that a lot. In the church, we, we do that a lot. It's okay in the church for birds of a feather to flock together, so to speak. In, in other words, if you're super reformed, you'll probably feel most comfortable at a super reformed church. You know what I mean? If you like worship that's, that's only piano or organ and cello and only hymns, and you're not probably going to be stoked at a church that's got like five electric guitars and drums and choruses and million-watt sound system, and so you probably don't go to that church. It's okay for birds of a feather to flock together. We understand that. But the issue is the heart. When you start to say, my way is better than your way, you are effectually saying, I am better than you are. You are creating two classes of Christians that is unbiblical. And the reason why that is a radical sin is because you are now doing something that God himself refuses to do. God says, we are all children of God by the blood of Christ. The, 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 the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And there's no such thing as a super saint and a ghetto saint. We all stand before God in grace because of what Christ has done equally. When, when you do that, here's why it's such a radical sin. You see, sin has to do primarily with taking things for ourselves that were meant for God to do or think or feel. God refuses to make first-class and second-class Christians. And when we do it, we're doing something God refuses to do. You think we're going to get to heaven and God's going to go, okay, here's the deal. We got super killer heaven and not that awesome heaven. <laughs> super killer heaven. Calvinists, you guys are in there. Pre-tribbers, you guys are in there. Holy rollers, you guys are in there. Pentecostals, you guys are for sure in there. God, you won't even be down with that. You got to be in here. King James only, you guys are in here. Everybody else, ghetto heaven for you. Like that's just, the, that's just the stupidest thing you could ever imagine. But we do that every single day in the church. And it's such a radical sin because we are choosing to do amongst ourselves something that God refuses to do. The truth of the gospel nullifies every other identifier and system of locating who is in and who is out. Hear the prayer of Christ in John 17, where he says, and praying for us, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. You see, the gospel creates unity among us. It's only by the gospel that we've received the Holy Spirit and become children of God. And, and we're in the same boat there. What, what at first brought us into fellowship is the gospel. And what now binds us together and is bigger than anything that threatens to tear us apart is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's not enough to just believe the gospel. It's not enough to preach the gospel. It's not enough to just preserve the gospel. We must learn to apply the gospel. Peter believed it. Peter preached it. 
Peter preserved it at the Council of Jerusalem and here in this account of Acts, but he didn't apply it relationally. And it was hypocrisy. And it was making the gospel crooked. Don't, we can't do what Peter did. We, we can't create second-class Christians. Here's my prayer for us from Romans 15. May God, who gives us patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with one another, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. And then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be given glory. Lord, help us with that. We need help with this, Lord. We, we confess our tendency to be snobby and think our ways and our preferences and perspectives are better than. Wow, Lord, we've been corrected today. We ask that you open our eyes to all the areas where we're doing that. That we would accept, include, and love one another in the way that you've called us to do, in a way that is true to who you are and what the gospel says. Lord, help us with that. Teach us by your spirit to apply the gospel to our relationships. Lord, birth in this church and in the church a new movement of gospel-oriented unity that brings glory to your name in the world. If you need prayer, pastors and elders, be up here on both sides, prayer team members. Communion is here to remember the cross, celebrate the gospel. And we can come and get on our knees or faces before the Lord, but let's press into Christ and let him change us. Mm -hmm.